0: Hey there, welcome to episode 42 of the Let's Innovate for Vegas audio program. I'm your host, Dan Hugo, the Managing Director of the Innovate for Vegas Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation here in the oasis in the desert, Las Vegas. Today we're going to talk about AI. It's everywhere, it's everything. I thought the hype around uh, the metaverse and Web3 and crypto. I thought those were going to be a thing. But no. Artificial intelligence is the present, the future, arguably the past. <laughs> and so uh, we have to include it in our agenda, so to speak. We're not a software company. That makes it a little bit easier to to sort of work it in where it makes sense. We We don't have to launch an AI product. We're not really hiring, so we don't have to find AI skill sets. But it is something that will be part of life. It'll be a a sort of an expectation, I think. And as we are looking at skills development for our civic volunteers, we should be aware of that. So learning the metaverse, learning how the blockchain works, those are also interesting, perhaps, still. Uh, But there's no no way AI or machine learning, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the general notion of actual automated data analysis with completely usable and arguably <laughs> superhuman outcomes is a thing. So we will uh, we'll include that in the agenda. So uh, if you have signed over your future to large language models, that's, that's maybe outside of what we're thinking about here. But there's no shortage of open source projects uh, that will enable our civic volunteer efforts with our extremely low budgets to dive into the delve into it, even uh, into this whole area, maybe come up with some interesting applications that I will say for the end. Uh, So let's get started. Why open source? Everything we do is open source. Uh, I have a couple of links in the, in the show notes in the link section. Uh, There are plenty of open source tools out there that we can start with uh, in this area and, and everywhere really. So I'll, I'll, touch on those also, but we are a civil a civic volunteer organization. So when we work on projects, they're all open source. They're all visible and usable. Uh, if you are completely unfamiliar with open source, I promise you, you are using open source tools, even when you aren't, uh, Linux is probably the highest profile project out there started back in, um, 90, 90. 1989, a long time ago, generally uh, could never have accomplished what it has accomplished in the way it accomplished it. If it were a closed source project, it would have been just another operating system because it's open source, free for many definitions of that word. People can learn from it. They can build on it. They can build with it. And the same is true of so many other tools and libraries and platforms and so on. Uh, the important thing for us is because we're a nonprofit corporation built on and by and working with volunteers, we may or may not be around forever. So the projects can persist even if we do not. And this is generally true. If a company shuts down and they have their project as a closed source endeavor and you somehow rely on what they're you know working on and they maybe it's a service, a web service. If you and your company or your endeavors, your life, if you depend on these tools, this platform, and they decide they can't stay in business anymore and they shut down and that goes away, then that kind of leaves you in a lurch. But if the platform itself is generally available, uh, the stewardship may change, uh, the rate of innovation may be reduced, but people who need a platform can continue it. Uh, And so open source development, open source projects, if we depend on these things. Yes, it's a there's always the other side of that coin, which is uh if you depend on open source projects and people stop working on them, then you don't stop depending on them, but you do suddenly have to find some other way to maintain them. There's a there's a critical <laughs> uh and well-known illustration of the uh, tower that is being held up by one plank of wood that is an open source project maintained by one person in their basement or something like that. Uh, this can happen too. So open source is, uh, is definitely worth pondering, but for our uses, the the projects are sustainable into the future because they're open for contribution and and people can use them and contribute to them and so on. They will persist beyond our organization and we are choosing uh as our default for our initial projects the GPLv3 some people will uh recoil <laughs> they will they will be uh put off by the viral nature of the GPL the GPLv3 is interesting because unlike um BSD apache MIT these are these are open source licenses but you can go ahead and build a commercial project I'm not going to go into the specific details. You have to read the licenses and dive in. But generally speaking, building a commercial project on the work of volunteers is something I believe you should be a little bit more aware of going into it. I think as a volunteer working on on an open source project, if you have a kind of a greater good goal and you're okay with contributing to commercial projects down the road without knowing that ahead of time. That's completely fine, and a lot of interesting and useful and sometimes critical things have taken this approach. Uh, For our organization, you may be new to all of this, and in our early days we even had some concerns raised here and there about am I signing away my rights to things if I contribute and so on. So this is, yes, viral GPL v3, but it's sort of a way to say, hey, whatever you work on is not going to be used without your knowledge or without you know somebody else is not going to capitalize on your efforts and you're left hanging licenses are only licenses they're not magic they're not they're not always easily enforced you know we don't have a big legal legal team to pursue these things but it, it is an effort and it's uh it's part of the general ethos of the open source world to uh to actually adhere to license terms, so that's what we're doing. So, GPLv3, that's always open to discussion later. And then for non, well, wherever things are not GPLable, then uh, Creative Commons can come in handy, a CC uh, commercial attribution or something similar. So you can use the, the a creative work like an image or a you know content written word. Can you change it? Maybe you know that depends. Uh, we'll we'll choose the appropriate CC license. But anyway, so open source, I think it's an important part of the world. It's an important part of our organization. It's an important part of the work, the contributions of creative works that people uh, will make to our projects into the future. So that's the thinking. And if you look at, um, you may not be, there's maybe too much inside baseball. You may not be tracking these sorts of things, but HashiCorp, the company behind Terraform, if you are into the cloud, the infrastructure as code world, they were starting to say, hey, uh, companies are building commercial projects, products even, on our open source work. And so we're paying for your company development. So this kind of gets back to what I was just saying. So the HashiCorp folks are like, we need to stay in business. And so they changed to uh, AGPL, which doesn't affect most people that are just using open source. But if you're building on their platform, you have to look at that license and adhere to the terms from the time they change their license. So it can get complicated, but at the same time, you, you there's a <clears throat> it's easy to put a company building open source or an entity. It doesn't have to be like a for profit company. It could be something like us. It's it's really easy to have a parasitic uh, weight on the shoulders of the people making the product or the service or the library or, the, or the, you know, the, the thing where a lot of work is being done for free on a volunteer basis or certainly, you know, for the greater good. And others are capitalizing on that literally. And at some point, there must be a, uh, some sort of balance. So I can't... Initially, there was a lot of backlash against HashiCorp, but I think, I think there's a nuanced discussion to be had about, you know, reality. So that's where we are. Open source AI is a big thing, though. Uh, open source AI enables civic volunteers, for example, to build and learn and to um, experiment, to contribute to open source projects in the AI space, among others, and enables a lot of innovation potential that might otherwise be tucked way behind a you know an extremely expensive uh, set of tools and ex- extremely uh, extremely expensive pile of intellectual property the result of you know expensive long research projects uh, artificial intelligence you know neural nets have been around since a long time ago well, probably bef- before I've been around so the notion has been around for quite some time uh, the compute that is available now to experiment the amount of data that can be drawn into the experiments for the you know training and so on whether you like it or not uh, makes cutting edge AI now a sort of a feedback loop and the compute is becoming a geopolitical uh, concern. It's become that big. So open source AI uh, will enable our projects and the people that want to volunteer to work on them to play a little bit. Uh, We're focused on learning and skills development. So elevating our communities with the civic volunteer efforts in this, in the AI space, can take place certainly much more uh, economically for us, um, and perhaps more easily, just because there's going to be a lot more learning in the open source AI space. So you're more likely to find the answer to a question from a, a community, if you will, of developers and experimenters and people using the tools. There's just so many. So if you look at the in the links, there are some open source tools. Uh, that's literally the <laughs> title. It's a free code camp link to some some things like PyTorch and Terra. Uh, I was going to say Terraform, uh, <laughs> TensorFlow. There are other tools that are similarly useful. There's a platform tool thing called LangChain that I think is probably going to be instrumental in some of the experiments we're going to pursue. And in the large language model world, large language models are not the answer to every question, but they're certainly useful for some things. And there are open source LLMs, large language models, that enable a lot of creativity and uh, experimentation without the fees associated with paying for, for example, the OpenAI chat GPT-4 Pro Premium Whatever, or paying to be a a Twitter premium user, premium plus checkbox, blue thing, whatever, X, to use their their new Grok, the X dot or is it is it X dot A? I think that is X dot uh, platform Grok. So open source LLMs will enable sort of on par experimentation and learning without having to pay too much money, and we can also uh, you know. We can roll our own. We can do a lot of things depending on who wants to participate and at what levels. And as well, there are some um, uh, there's some image generation, there are video generation, there's language translation. There's a lot of things that are <clears throat> more human focused than uh, than the coding side. So yes, you can do code generation. By the way, personally, I find uh, code generation to be useful. I, I I will use a digital clock example. When I was young I at one point said uh, oh if I have a digital clock I don't need to learn how to read the time on a on a normal clock analog. So of course I did get it I got a digital clock later in life but when I was very young and I said that I think it's probably good that my parents got me a uh, an analog clock or a watch I can't remember. But the take home uh similarly you can certainly listen to audiobooks but you should also learn how to read. So there's a time and a place to use these tools. I think if people choose to do a low-code, no-code approach because they don't want to learn how code works, that's okay. If you never learn how code works and you always rely on AI to write your code for you or to write your press releases or your emails or your you know interaction with other people, you're kind of handing away some of the important parts of being a human <laughs> and You may or may not gain the skills that you would otherwise have if you didn't hand this work off. Another example, I can drive a standard transmission because that's how I learned. If you never learn how to drive a standard transmission, maybe you don't ever need to until you do. So there's something to be said about learning how systems work. And I personally lean towards uh, using tools to augment work. You know, I'm not a graphic artist but I, I can at least start with something. So rather than having AI generate something completely, it might be interesting to generate a starting point or to generate, uh, maybe through a filter or through some sort of, um, manipulation of a starting point. So, so tools can augment, but if they start replacing skills or creativity, eh, yeah, maybe that's a longer show for another time. Anyway, so the, um, as I mentioned, there there are AI tools that can generate images, video, audio, probably do a slightly better job at language translation, although I, from what I understand, that's still coming along. It's not, not quite as easy as one might hope. But ultimately, uh, being able to use these tools uh, in a practical way is a part of what we're trying to accomplish, which is to have civic volunteers elevate our communities, make our communities better with their efforts, and their efforts might... And should include learning uh, how to how AI tools work, and learning how to use those tools to accelerate their efforts, to elevate their own learning, their own job skills development, and so on. So, there's a there's a place for AI in everything we're doing, and there's a place for AI in the job skills and collaboration skills development that our civic volunteer cohorts will benefit from. So. Uh, Open source AI seems like a win all the way around. We'll, We'll see in 2024. Speaking of 2024, what sorts of things are we capable of doing? Well, that remains to be seen. One of the things, one of the notions on which the original Code for Vegas organization was founded when it was more tightly coupled to Code for America was a drive to build and deploy an open data platform, which the city of Las Vegas has today thanks to those early efforts back in the 2014-ish time frame. And so there's open data available for you today, uh, hosted on ArcGIS. I've I've linked to these before, but if you're listening to this podcast audio program and you already know about open data, then you probably know where our data sets are stored on ArcGIS. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you probably would not be... Comfortable exploring the sort of uh, sort of generic interface. Uh, yes, there's a map and you get some tables and you can filter data, but it's something of a chore if you are uninitiated to deal with the open data as it is. But the fact is we have a lot of open data, which is maintained. We've had Anthony Willis, who is uh, essentially overseeing the open data platform content and so on, the data. Uh, Nicole is, has moved on to the city of North Las Vegas. So we had a, an audio program episode with Anthony and Nicole back a few months ago. I'll leave that for you. If you have found this audio channel, you can scroll back a few episodes back. If you like, uh, I would probably like to have Anthony back on when we get our open data capture platform up and running. Speaking of, so the open data capture platform is designed to enable more data to flow into our open data data sets. And by the way, uh, I believe we talked about this during that episode, during. Uh, I believe it's recorded and there for you to hear. There's open data and there's public data. The The city policies on on approvals and management and maintenance and governance essentially d- uh, differ between open and public data. For our purposes, you know, using the term more generically, open data, So what we would hope to do is enable the people of Las Vegas, mostly people who live in the greater Vegas area. Initially, that would be, you know, we're focusing on innovating for Vegas after all. Start with our existing infrastructure, our existing data sets and add to them could be any, because a lot of the data sets, by the way, focus on the downtown Las Vegas area, not all, but some. So if we open up the, the ingestion of data could be anything from, you know, park. One of my fa- one of my favorites is the parking uh, lots and structures, I think it is, data set, which is mostly downtown, but it's essentially here's each parking lot, how many spaces, whether it's pay, hours of operation. That is more useful than you can initially think. I mean, parking is a thing here and anywhere in and around the greater Vegas area. Parking, parking fees, et cetera. So having that as, a, as an open data data set, you can build an application with that data and, and publish it. The licensing of the open data is fairly liberal. It's, a, it's a, in the commons, so it's paid for by the city and so on. So if we can add to that data and extend the parking and st- structure and lot data to beyond downtown into the rest of the greater Vegas area, it could be useful. Uh, there is a lot to be said about accessibility. So how many of those parking spaces in a particular lot are designated as um, uh, accessible? The, the, uh, the classic blue wheelchair icon. Uh, you know, and there's always confusion about exactly what those spaces are for and who should be allowed to park in them. These are the sorts of things that can be made a part of the open data uh, data, uh, data set. So that people can access not only which spaces where and how many, but what what do I need to park in these? You know, because those are regulated, uh, code enforcement. The parking lots are often private property, so that's a whole. We're not going to get into that here, but there's a lot of opportunity to capture a lot of open data. And then the the uh, part two of that effort is now that you have all this data, you have a training data data set. So having data and then training a model with that data, especially because it is all open data. So you're not impinging on an artist's uh, rights or you're not a threatening copyright and so on. These are open data data sets that you can actually train on and we, we can put those to use. So, um, so that's a, that would be a starting point. So more of a blue sky experiment is to make use of our open data data sets with modern machine learning and then AI. Uh, I've seen one application, you know, you can find these headlines, chat with your data, right? If you train a model on the constitution, the United States constitution and all the amendments, and you could probably delve into the various codes. Uh, Cornell has a nice database of, of our federal codes. So these are, these are um, the laws, the laws of the land. So you could train a model from the top down and then ask things like, you know, is it legal to do this? Am I allowed to do that? I don't know if somebody's done that already, but that's one example. So if you train a model on all of this open data and you can ask it, you know, where can I park <laughs> to go back to that? So ideally, we would be able to expose all this open data, which <clears throat> I've literally sat in front of a developer casual conversation. And I said, "Well, did you know we have this data available today, right now?" And I pointed him to the website on my phone, which is not—it's not really phone friendly—the ArcGIS tools. But I said, "Yeah, we have this data. Oh my god, I wish I would have known about this <laughs> before." And I said, well, it's been around since like two thousand, say sixteen, similar form. Not so much SoCrata. If you know what that is, then you know. So yeah, putting this data to use in uh, tangible ways and enabling people to add to it and applying it for model training, for practical applications, it's something to think about. It's something on the agenda. Uh, on the chatting side, so the machine learning and AI, the, uh, the chat, chat GPT and similar large language models, they get a lot of attention. There's more to it, but, uh, but on the chatting side, there's no shortage of stuff. In Vegas. There's plenty of content. Uh could be restaurants, could be events, could be venues, could be uh residences, could be entertainment, etc. You now tell me about the trees at the Bellagio. Uh, <laughs> uh not found. But the 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 ability to interact with our virtual Vegas notion that we haven't talked about that in a while. But if you could if you could ask digital twin about, you know, Hey, I'm a visitor to Vegas. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. One of the common ways that people tackle this is they say, and there are, there are some applications. There's the down to play, uh, website. I don't know if there's a mobile app down to play is an example. A bunch of money, a grant of some sort was given for that platform to the downtown Vegas Alliance. I think down to play. Uh, I can't remember the exact URL because I really don't use the platform because it is a firehose. So what the the typical approach to a place like Vegas, a destination city, which has many, many parts of our fun economy to explore. So how do you present that to people? Well, here's everything. Good luck. So the down to play platform is yet another version of this, which is uh, here's everything. We'll present it to you in ways that are not necessarily useful, and then uh, good luck with that. And so I don't know how popular the platform has been, but there are some actual mobile apps that have taken this approach. There's this subset approach, so you assume like, uh, oh, you must be a visitor in town and you're interested in the Strip, so we'll limit the fire hose of of, uh, information to Strip events and Strip venues. So the Las Vegas Strip is a part of the greater Vegas area, but it's not everything. So the ability to build a chat model on the parts of the greater Vegas area that would be interesting to people in and allow them to access these pieces of information in ways that we cannot predict, that is, um, does it make sense to categorize things that, you know, the way that we would, or we, you know, quote, we, the platform developers, we're going to characterize, you know, like, uh, escape rooms and, uh, restaurants, or can a large language model, make those inferences and allow an individual to say things like, I'm looking for a place to, uh, with some, some friends to go have an evening of challenge and then, uh, you know, collaborative challenge and then go out for a meal afterwards. And it might come up with some ideas about suggested escape rooms and some restaurants that you probably would not have found by being presented with a set of 50 escape rooms and a thousand restaurants, right? Like, Ooh, these are close together. Or it might, you, know, you might say, and by the way, we all like Italian, or we, uh, we're all vegetarians, or et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. So, the challenge with presenting a fire hose of data, and you can find this in the ArcGIS platform as well. Here's a map with some blue dots for each data point. So, you end up with a map of blue dots, and that is not user friendly. The searches, the filter creation to view this data, the tabular data, these are all very dry, very boring. Very unfriendly to the casual user, certainly not localized. So if you're not a native English speaker, you may find yourself asking, what does that really mean? So a large language model approach built or trained on useful information, open data perhaps about the greater Vegas area, venues, latitude and longitude of locations, parking options, public transit options, the list goes on. Uh, that might be an interesting experiment, and it would not be tremendously difficult to do so look for that in twenty twenty four and then um so I mentioned the open data so if you can if we can actually train the the machine learning parts not necessarily, not necessarily AI but if we can actually gain some insights from the data we have and so machine learning has gotten sort of a push to the back, but it it's still a thing. Uh, you you're basically classifying uh, and and uh, deep learning on data sets so that you can find uh, you can infer from these data sets things you may not have imagined there's a challenge in general if you are if you're crazy like me and you are really interested in seeing public transit improve here in the greater vegas area, then you attend web conferences and you participate in in these discussions and you maybe even have an open transit project that you're trying to get people to contribute to scheduling open I'm sorry scheduling public transit is a real problem it is a real challenge Uh, here in Vegas it is very clear that that challenge awaits (laughs) Uh, there's a a drastic drastic dramatic drastic pick one Uh, asymmetry in the routing the example I like to give is I can take um, an express bus from the Centennial Hills area. It will take 20 minutes to get downtown, and then the equivalent distance, unless you take the BHX, the uh, the Boulder Highway Express, or I think there's one other one, one other express. But if you take the BHX, you can head to towards Boulder City, and it will be almost as quickly to, where you can take a motorcycle, dirt bike, probably. You can take the HBX, and you can take another 20 minutes, and you can probably get as far in that direction. If, however, you would like to go to the Harry S. Reed Tech Park or Ikea, or if you'd like to go to anywhere in the southwest, the uh, the Uncommons, if you'd like to get down there from downtown, you're looking at at least an hour, maybe more like 90 minutes, and some of these buses don't run late, so some buses you can catch at 2 in the morning. Some buses you better be on that last bus at 11 p.m. So for a city such as the, uh, well, for a region such as the greater Vegas area that prides itself on uh, not being up all night, this, the, the lights are not always on. But certainly, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not a city that never sleeps. That's New York. But certainly a lot of things happen in Las Vegas past 11 p.m. So the notion that our public transit system is so unfriendly in a place where parking is also so unfriendly and where construction and road nightmares in general are also so unfriendly. You would think we would focus on being able to get around with 40 million people visiting, most of whom probably do not have cars on top of the fraction of the 2.3 million people that live in Clark County that don't have cars. Okay. I'll get off my soapbox now, but the fact is scheduling public transit and perhaps dynamic routing and adaptive, you know, event-based schedule changes or augmented routes or things. Like, why not explore these? And in an open platform environment, we can do that. So that's on my personal, you know, 2024 list to look into. There's tons of work to do on the Open Transit Project in general, and we need people to actually commit to it. So these are all blue sky at this point. But something to think about. And then the most interesting thing, the most... Intriguing, I would hope given our smart city status, you know, Las Vegas is among the smartest of the smart cities in the second tier of smart cities. There's, there's plenty of opportunity to experiment. There are people visiting from all over the world, some, some more uh, points of origin uh, than maybe used to be. Maybe, maybe fewer people from some parts of the world, maybe more from others, etc. But we have, you know, approximately 40 million people, the, the the exact numbers will vary you can check out the lvcba.com las vegas convention of visitors authority publishes monthly data i believe october has been up for these early days of december november will be out soon that will be interesting for the formula one data so the and by the way uh convention and visitor authority data might also be interesting for knowing how people are visiting and why and from where and how you know all these things so so, ingesting and putting data to use in novel ways that we haven't thought of. Um, I'm literally. I could even quote one of our uh, marketing people when I was working with Intel Corporation. When he went to his very first hackathon, I was surprised to hear them say this to some of the students who were wondering, you know, why is Intel at a hackathon like this? He said, "Well, we've come here because what you guys come up with here, what not not guys, but he probably said guys." what you come up with here will almost certainly be things that we didn't think about. So if you can, and this is the you know, the definition of a platform is the value of what comes of the platform, and this is a definition, the value of what comes from the platform, the use of the platform, should exceed the value of the platform itself, right? So if you enable innovation with your, it's the standing on the shoulders of giants. If you're a uh, Isaac Newton fan, sir, Isaac Newton, that is. If you have seen further, it is, because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, I believe that's the quote. So if you are able to take a platform and build upon it and build something of even greater value, then mission accomplished. And So ideally, the Innovate for Vegas Foundation will steward and foster and otherwise encourage and enable ideation, innovation, and implementation along these lines, whether it's AI or not, and we will come up with some things that we didn't think about. And maybe a year from now, when I'm talking about our AI plans for 2025, or more generally, our project plans for 2025, perhaps we will look back and say, we didn't even think about that one thing, or those two things, or whatever. So ideally, that will be on the agenda, is uh, TBD, TBI, to be innovated. So a lot of potential, a lot of possibility, powered quite literally by open source efforts by others. So same thing. The... The, the giants in the AI space, the even meta, even meta <laughs> with the llama model and some other stuff that they're doing. The open source approach, hugging face, big thing, laying chain, of course, some, some interesting tool ideas and integration and so on. Even things like PyTorch and, and uh, TensorFlow, these various tools and platforms and libraries and papers and documentation and example projects and real applications that are built so that people can learn from them and build upon them. Will ultimately benefit a great number of people. Uh, not quite as flashy as uh, super expensive executive talent and the various implications, but real people doing real work so that others can do the same. It's an interesting, uh, what an interesting time. So I'll leave it there today. This is more of a, it's more of a blue sky episode about what might be. Uh, We still need more volunteers, more people to take an interest, an active interest, and to participate more than once. And that is always, by the way, this is a global challenge. If there's one thing we learned from the Space Apps Challenge, there are some people in the greater Vegas area that would like to be involved in innovation and open source project development and reaching beyond their grasp and so on. There are places on the planet where there's um, 100, 200 times as many at time, multiply. By 200 uh, in places where a culture of innovation is more, more uh, established, stronger, if you will. So part of our innovation culture cultivation efforts here is to encourage more people to volunteer their time and efforts and energies and to learn from those and to benefit in some ways. Uh, not necessarily explicitly financially, but, you know, job skills development, learning how to collaborate, making better communities, elevating, solving problems. Closing gaps, making use of these open source technologies, learning from them, impressing people—yeah, you know, these are all on the uh, on the menu. So that's where I can leave it today. I thank you for listening. Thank you, as always, for supporting the Innovate for Vegas Foundation, a five hundred one c three. If you would like to donate, you can always visit our website. And uh, a, a cooler website it will be in the offing, as you may or may not have heard. We're eventually—you know—by the way, Spotify. Uh, just laid off, what, 17% of their workforce. Hosting audio programs on Spotify is not a bad thing, but it may not necessarily be a good thing if they decide to shut the doors. They probably won't, but probably will, is just the other part of that probability. So look for our website to be the place to find the, the primary publication of this audio program. And any of our other projects and so on, um, we use GitHub, but you know we sh- you should be able to find our projects without using GitHub. We publish on Spotify and other platforms, but you should be able to find our audio programming and so on without necessarily need to go to Spotify. So these are also on the agenda. And hey, maybe maybe a social information sharing platform for a smarter smart city would be an interesting place to find audio and video and other such creative works that people publish in and or about the greater Vegas area. Hmm. Topic for another time. Thank you for listening. Uh, always again, appreciate your support, like share, subscribe, do whatever is appropriate. Uh, yeah, I I picked that up on YouTube. Do what you like. This is always free. And if you if you want to support our efforts even better, take care. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.